So if you're following along in the church Bibles, it is on page 1060. So I'm reading from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 53, and it will come up on the slide as well. Now the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. 
Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Well, it's great to be with you. Um, it's going to be good to get stuck into uh, today. Happy Easter. Warm welcome to you if you're here visiting. Love to have you here. Great to uh, meet you. Um, please hang around after uh, the service if you can as well. Now, I'm very excited about today because one of the privileges of being a pastor is my time is freed up to look into things so I can share with you. And so I've spent the last month or so going back to consider the very things that Christians say are fundamental, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's my privilege to be able to do that. And my goal today is to kind of show you and try and figure out what what to say, what not to say, but to, to give you confidence in that Jesus did rise, did die and rise again. And if you're a skeptic or you're not sure that he did or whatever, that you would engage helpfully with the best arguments for it. Um, now, obviously, it's an introduction in a way today because it's we can't go for too long, but I hope that it'll encourage you. And um, those communication cards, yeah, hammer me with any questions. I promise I will respond to you this week about any questions you have about the death and resurrection of Jesus that really puzzle you about it. Because um, it's a real um, privilege to go back. And what I tried to do is go back and think through, okay, I need to rem- I've taken these things uh, to believe them. I've staked my whole life and what I do for a job. I've moved my family based on this being true. And so I went back and, and examined it. And it's good for Christians to do that. And if you truly are a skeptic, it's really good to be an informed skeptic, I reckon, um, to, to be challenged by them. And, and we don't want to hide away from the, the ideas as well. So that's what we're going to do. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, this is a great morning because we remember... This extraordinary thing, you rising from the dead, your son coming back to life, giving us life in light of it. We pray that we'll be able to understand it with greater clarity today, that we'll see Jesus for what he's done. Amen. Well, as it turned out, being April Fools, as we know, we may have had a bit of fun with that this year. And a lot of us in the, in the Trinity Network, I think half of our churches have run with this theme. And it's been, been a little bit of fun. We've had fun with the kids and, and all sorts of things. But I thought, to start off with, let me prepare you for next year. I know there's some teenagers here, some young adults who like a practical joke. And I know there's quite a few of you older people that like practical jokes. So let me give you a few, t- <laughs> a few tips for what you could do next year or any time. Some of the favourites are the old door air horn. So you just chuck a really loud horn, stick it on the door, or you do it on a chair. That's an old classic. You can do that. Great April Fool's joke, and you can make people um, really get shocked by the noise. This is a cruel one. This is one I'm not a fan of because I hate snakes, but you could go to a shop and amongst the fruit, put a little fake snake amongst the, the, the uh, vegetables. That would be 
If you did that to me, I would be a broken person. All right, now the next one. This is a disgusting one. Instead of a nice smelling spray, you can use shrimp scent and just swap the bottle over. If you really want to make gross people out, you can go for that one. These are really great tips, aren't they? And then the next one is if you're really devoted. If you're really committed, this is in a school, gee, I reckon they got in trouble. All right, they are all cups full of water everywhere. That's a lot of effort, but if you're committed, that's a great practical joke. You could do that somewhere. Um, none of my kids are in the room, are they? Oh, no, that's not good. You're not watching this or listening to this. All right. Next one is, this is my favourite, the last one, is what you do is you get someone's number, you put it up there and you say, Chewbacca contest, winner gets $50. And what you do is you get people to leave voicemails where they give you the loudest and best Chewbacca noise into your phone and the person gets a whole bunch of Chewbacca noises on their voicemail. That is fantastic. I love that. I wouldn't mind if you did. No, actually, no, I wouldn't mind. Don't do that to me. All right. Now, with practical jokes, right, with them, there's an element when there's that moment where you go, this is a practical joke, right? That happens. Uh, clearly, after maybe the third Chewbacca one, you wouldn't think it was weird. You think, hang on, what's going on here? When you walk into the room full of all the cups, you're going, this isn't normal, this is a practical joke. And then you walk all over them and it's a disaster. We, you, there's a point where you know, what if humanity is in the middle of the greatest and longest-running practical joke and we still haven't got to that point yet where we realise, oh, this actually didn't happen. That is an absolutely fundamental, critical question for the Christian, for anyone to engage with. There is no doubt that without the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's pointless being a Christian. And anyone who says otherwise has kind of lost the perspective on what it's all built on. The gospel writer, uh, the, the uh, New Testament writer Paul, he, he said very clearly in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection, if you don't, uh, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That is, futile, it's pointless, it's stupid. Everything hinges on his death and resurrection. And it's reasonable to say, on one level, it's pretty hard to believe. And I pointed this out on Friday, on Good Friday, when we came together. And you can see there on the outline, if you've got it in front of you, there's those four things. And I've got that that diagram on the other page that highlights that. I think I've put it up on the screen as well. There it is. There's four things that if these things are often challenged, that it can't be verified, that it's not accurate. How could it possibly, all that time ago, be accurate to what we have now? The writings are too old. That is, you've got that happened and then the writings that we've got are way, way after the event. So how could we possibly rely on them? And what we really looked in on on Friday, and I uh, encourage you to consider that um, as well as part of the package of it all, how can we know the gospel writers were not biased? And as we looked at um, the, the death of Jesus and how he definitely died, that's kind of the precursor to the real challenge. Did he rise? It's very, some people, as we said on, on Friday, uh, some people still challenge that idea, even to today, that he didn't die, but the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that Jesus was on the cross and that he died, and we wrestled with that on Friday. And as we saw that, we saw that it's very, there's no evidence to suggest that they had any bias. What do we do with the death 
in the, the resurrection. You see, can this be verified? That is, one of the best ways to have it verified is that you need external evidence to point to that people are thinking this is true. That is, if we've got the Bible, which is what Christians hold to be true, as a historical document, and Christians hold that it's God's word, but this is a reliable historical document, what about external evidence to that? Do, what do others say, who maybe who don't even believe? Is there any validity to them indicating this is what people thought? It's not being accurate. What should we expect in the retelling of the facts if if it's going to be accurate? I mentioned about the writings being too old. It's very interesting as we look into them, we'll see a little bit today. Actually, we can have more confidence in that than what's just commonly thought. That they're actually pretty close. And there's even greater testimony than before the writings. And the Gospel writers, well, the consistency of them in their lack of bias is really um, outstanding to us. So let's have a look at this. Um, I hope this uh, helps encourage you and to so, you know, consolidate your thinking if you lo- uh, follow Jesus and love him. And if you're really wrestling what you think about God, I hope this can answer your, uh, start to answer your questions or even stimulate what questions you have that you want answered that we can continue thinking about. So the question is, what confidence can we have that Jesus actually rose from the dead? To sort this all out, there's two questions. He must have died and he must have rose. We've done the death on Friday and today we're going to look at the resurrection and we're going to break that down into two parts. Is there good reason to believe the tomb was empty? Some people say we don't have any reason to think that or that we don't know where the tomb was. And secondly, is there good reason to believe that all the testimonies that he appeared to people after he died in his rising of the dead? Can we have good reason to believe in them? This is what we're going to engage with. And then I want us to finish today by going back to that story of the road to Emmaus, which is really fascinating and it's supposed to challenge our journey. And so that's what we're going to do. So um, uh, my prayer is this is helpful for you. And there are two guys um, that have been giants in the area. There's many great uh, giants in, the, in this area, but there's two significant giants in this area of apologetics and these particular issues. Um, their names are William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas. Um, William Lane Craig is a well-known um, apologist. He was in Adelaide two years ago. I think I heard him speak and met him. He's um, fascinating guy who often de- debates atheists and engages with them and he talks about the tomb and Gary Habermas his arguments in, in he's still going but in the 80s he was uh, he was uh, the really the, he transformed how scholars think about the resurrection even those who don't think that uh, believe in Christianity in the evidence and his, historicity and he's uh, well thought out in that and and I read lots of books and lots of articles and things over the time. But what I found really helpful, and I mainly brought this one up because it's so short and so concise, but some of you may have heard of Lee Strobel. He's a guy who was a journalist and a skeptic. And so he decided, and he's written many books, and most of the books are called The Case for Something. And this one's called The Case for Easter. There's this one that I read when I was a really young Christian, The Case for Faith. And his, and his biggest one, probably The Case for Christ. But this case for Easter, he wanted to ask and pull apart as best he could as a journalist, like we looked with the guy who was a policeman on Friday, is it possible to believe the evidence? 
And so he went and interviewed people. He went and interviewed a doctor about did he die? And then he went and interviewed William Lane Craig about the tomb. And then he interviewed Gary Habermas about uh, the actual appearances. And I, and I drew on that a lot because that was a great summary of all the things that I, that I read. So can we have good reason to believe the tomb was empty? Let me give you some points to consolidate our thinking on it. There are early accounts that the tomb was empty. Um, the testimony of Acts and 1 Corinthians is super important. No one really doubts that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and the, the argument that it was written about 55 AD. Now, if we think about that for a moment, around there, Paul wrote that and Jesus, say, died around 30 AD, you know, zero, born roughly 30 AD. It's 25 years after Paul has written that testimony. It's a ridiculously early account in which extraordinary claims about the death and the tomb and the resurrection of Jesus are made. They are very early and nothing compares uh, to it. Um, Lane Craig pointed out in chapter 15 uh, in 3 to 7, Jesus, uh, Paul mentions the burial, quite impl- uh, it's quite clear in there that it's implied. We'll, we'll get to 1 Corinthians because it's very important in a moment. Um, but there's a Jewish book that told Doth Jesse. You know, I said things outside of the Bible need to consolidate thinkings, which refers to um, Jesus and saying that his body was removed from the tomb. Now, a lot of the arguments are we can't find the tomb. We don't really know which tomb it was. But there's a real problem with that. The Christians of the time and the Jews of the time, they actually admitted the tomb was empty. And <laughs> in Jerusalem is where Christians began to preach. Now, if they're preaching in Jerusalem and, and they, they have a tomb where the body's supposed to be, if they say he's risen from the dead and they're preaching right where it's happened there, they just go to the tomb and say, well, look, here he is. Because they didn't want it to be true. But they couldn't do that. Some say, well, uh, and we know that to be true too, because, well, reality is uh, the Jews were of the assumption that the body had gone missing because they made up a story about the guards sleeping. You're not going to make up the story about the guards sleeping if they're not worried about the body gone missing. Uh, Justin Marta and Tertullian, two others, who talked about those Jewish uh, uh, observations that the body's gone missing. And the Bible's very clear that there was an empty tomb. But that said, there are those that say there are significant contradictions there's a guy in 1996, uh, Charles Templeton, uh, who wrote a book called Farewell to God. That's a pretty implicit, okay, we know what he's going to be talking about. It's a, a, a clear title. And he said, the four descriptions of the events of the resurrection, so, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the stories about Jesus, differ so markedly at so many points that with all the goodwill in the world, they cannot be reconciled. Let's be clear, they're not perfectly in line. And, and Dr. Michael Martin uh, uh, make, makes that point very clear. Let me uh, just uh, remind, remind you of what, what he said. He said, In sum, the accounts of what happened at the tomb are either inconsistent or can only be made consistent with the aid of implausible interpretations. That is, you've got to make up stuff that's a bit dodgy to, to reconcile everything. But here's the thing. If you're a philosopher, you look at things like that and you see that things are contradictory if they don't all line up. 
But historians don't ever, good, proper academic historians, don't look at stories and see them that way. They look at the details and see that there's a core story and then there's secondary details that are often and actually mostly should be kind of a bit different. That was the point that uh, Warner Wallace in the book on Friday talked about as a policeman. If everyone comes in to talk about a crime and all of the suspects are lined up and their stories are exactly the same, what's the policeman do? Oh, okay, they mustn't have done... They start to ask the question, hang on a minute, this is lined up too perfectly. All these secondary details, have they colluded? That is not in of itself a reason to destroy the arguments. In fact, it consolidates them. And William Lane Craig really helpfully said you can actually harmonise some of these contradictions. When you have multiple sources, there's a reason for differences. So, for example, they go to the tomb kind of at dawn. So, you can say, well, they go at night time. They go in the dark, rather. Or they go at the light. When it's dawn, it depends. If you're an optimist, you might say it's light. If you're a pessimist, you might say it's dark. But it just kind of depends where you are and what um, you're trying to convey about when they go. It's not contradictory. Uh, some say, well, the list of who goes to the tomb is, is different, but none of them are actually complete lists. There's no promise that they're complete lists. Mark's gospel um, does things a little bit differently and he doesn't, he doesn't go into details and he says that they're scared and frightened in a different way that the others do. But that's because that was how Mark was trying to tell the story in a rush and he hardly talks about the resurrection because he wants people to be shocked. And so that element he was conveying... I think we can see as we build up all of these that there's lots of reasons to see that the tomb was empty but there's one that I think that is really... I, I, would, I would wonder whether it's the most important but it's certainly very significant and both William Glenn Craig and, and, um, and Gary Habermas brought this up uh, in very stark detail. It is remarkable um, and it's hard for us to get our heads in it, in it but it's remarkable that in all the four accounts as we read them, it's women who go and see the tomb first. Now, the reality is, in the first century, Jewish law said women could not testify in a court of law. Uh, there are Jewish... Like, this is not something to be condoned, let me be clear. This is not how we think. This is just the context that it was in. There, there, there were writings which said women are liars. And... If this was a legend that came about that wanted to be believed, you'd expect there'd be lots of legends and you'd expect that this would be a little bit too embarrassing. You wouldn't want to keep it in there because you don't listen to that testimony. But they are all there. The women are the one because that's what happened. Whether it's embarrassing or not, it's irrelevant because that is what's happened and it's beautiful that that's the way God revealed the testimony correcting that way of thinking as well but we see how clearly that is a stark revelation that you'd want to hide the role the significant role of the women in the testimony there's something that we maybe lose sight of today but is overwhelmingly important i think there are lots of reasons to suggest jesus that the tomb was empty in fact i'd like I think that the evidence suggests that you've got to prove that it wasn't. What about the second point? There's good reason to believe that he appeared to people after rising from the dead. 
Now, first of all, when you think about it, there was no eyewitnesses to the actual resurrection, was there? There was no one in the tomb other than Jesus. You say, well, couldn't that mean where you've got no proof of it? But when it comes to evidence, that's how it works. We don't, we don't go back to a, to a disease and, and, and just see how it originates. We try and figure out the symptoms and how that may came about after the fact. Police, when they go and look, they don't, they're not there. They don't happen to be at every single crime when it happens. They go back and look at the evidence. That's not a reason to shoot down the argument. It's true. No one was in the tomb. One of the most important reasons, getting back to how much can we trust the documents, is how early this was believed to be true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in Paul's writings, there's, he talks about the resurrection in great detail. It's written very early, as I've already mentioned, and it's also this part which many scholars believers and not believers say was kind of a creed that early Christians believed in before Paul even wrote it. So 25 years after, and this is already something the Christian church held to, and you can see that as it's put out. Um, a creed is something that people say and believe as what they hold on to. Um, so let me, let me um, show you 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. I think it's fascinating. So this is Paul writing, you know, 25 years after or so, 20 years after or so, um, the death of Jesus, after Jesus has appeared directly to him, and he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he, he uh, appeared to me also as to one abnormally born." You see there, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you. This is something that was already built in to the understanding of what had taken place. That is something that was received, delivered and passed on already, very, very early on. This is actually quite astounding historically. Historians are amazed by how early this has come together. The idea that Jesus died it fulfills all the Old Testament scriptures and that he rose again. The tomb was empty and he rose again and appeared. And Paul testifies to, appearing to himself as well. It's something that is held deeply. Uh, I saw uh, Gary, uh, Gary Habermas um, debate. It's a famous debate that I only just discovered at the end of this week um, with a, an atheist in the 80s who's a, uh, an amazing philosopher. Um, as well, who and they used to debate all the time. It seemed like they were a bit of they were friends as well. And and in that debate, when when he brought up this argument, he he didn't have any way of denying that that was the case. That this was held very early, very true. He couldn't hold to it being real, but it's hard to ex- not accept that it was very early. The idea that this is something passed on way later and it became a legend isn't actually true. There it is. But the challenge comes out. Did you notice in there? It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Have a look. It says, as we go on to the next slide, um, he appeared to keep us. And then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. That is amazing. Come on, 500, as if that happened. Jesus had lots of people gather around him um, previously in the stories. This is our earliest source. It's the only time it's recorded, but our earliest source of um, 
of the resurrection and we have this testimony in all of the other things that happen. Uh, another attack, well, okay, you've got that, yeah, sure, that happened, but it says that first appeared to Cephas or Peter. What about your argument about the women? Another contradiction, massive problem. But there's no indication that it's a, uh, necessarily a, a case of timeline. It's kind of a, uh, it can just as easily be appearing first to Peter logically in priority. Peter, the one who, you know, God is the rock who God builds uh, his church on that uh, Matthew talks about. You've got Peter and then he talks about all the different steps. It's like a logical progression of his argument. It's not necessarily a timeline of the exact historical order. That's completely reasonable, I think. And then we have the testimony of the Gospels who don't have an ulterior motive and we see that he appears many, many times. And there's a list on the screen here just to give you an idea of it. I think it comes up. Yeah, there it is. You might not be able to see it clearly. But there, there's, I think, um, most of the accounts, if not all of them, I think all of them, of the times where Jesus appeared after his death and resurrection. It's extraordinary, the amount and the different ways and the way they integrate together. And there is early evidence that this is the way they thought because of the book of Acts. Luke's gospel, which we're looking at um, over this time, and we're looking at chapters 1 to 9, we're just jumping to the end because it's Easter, but we'll go back to um, chapter 7 next, next week. Um, Luke's gospel uh, brings out uh, Jesus and he ascended, as we just read, but then Luke writes about the church starting. And as soon as the church starts, the testimony right from the beginning was the key to this church starting is Jesus died and rose again. Absolutely. It's amazing. The sermons of Acts, and Acts chapter 2 highlight it, the resurrection is key. I wonder whether these things are consolidating or helpful for us or challenging our preconceived ideas that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. Some people want to come up with alternatives and they're worth mentioning. Uh, we have two main ideas of alternatives for what happened. Oops, sorry about that. Um, it's a legend. It's a legend. But I've already mentioned if it's a legend, there's a few challenges to that. We have really, really early testimonies and where are the other legends? When legends come out, when things kind of develop over time, you have more than one, typically. And there isn't, in that sense, the way that this has played out. And it's very hard to come up with legends when things are so early put together. But the bigger argument that is often portrayed is that they were just hallucinating. That's one of the biggest arguments. And as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about it, and then I, I, did, I did read it, I thought, okay, that might be a reasonable thought, is if they were hallucinating, never mind the fact that it's pretty hard, in fact, it's impossible for 500 people to hallucinate at the same time, there'd be a body in the tomb if it was just a hallucination. But we've got very good reason, as we just briefly mentioned, to know there's no body in the tomb. So how can you have both? And how could it be hallucination? Um, if, you, if James and, and Paul were unbelievers, why would they create an hallucination? Why would they? They, they were unbelievers. Some people go, oh, it's not the hallucination, it's just this idea of groupthink, that you, you convince each other and you, and you roll into it and think that way. 
That's also extremely unlikely when we look at the way the story's played out and the way the testimony's been put together and the very question, of as, as people would think that way, you'd expect to see people fall in and out of holding on to these ideas in which we don't see that. And so that's by really a way of introduction uh, and a summary of much of my reading and thinking of, of the confidence that we can actually have that the testimonies of the Bible about the death and resurrection of Jesus are really worth considering. Um, I want to uh, encourage you to ask your questions from the point of view of you're a follower but you're more intrigued or you're not satisfied with something I've said. I'm totally happy to be challenged and pushed. Um, and particularly if you're just not convinced but you've got a question or you want to challenge, I, I, please feel free. Because I think this is so unbelievably exciting for us to see what Jesus has done. And it's extraordinary. What does this actually achieve? And I want us to go to the road to Emmaus. That story is extraordinary. Luke, I think, is trying to do for you, for me, what actually happened to them. It's about surprise. The whole story of Luke that we've been looking at over the weeks, and if you haven't been with us um, and you're wondering what's Luke on about, he's on about that God's kingdom is upside down. It's totally different than you could imagine. And, he's, and on the road to Emmaus, you can't actually see or understand it until you truly get that Jesus died for you. And so as, the, as it goes in um, Luke 24, <laughs> these people are disillusioned about what's happened. And so they're walking maybe back home to Emmaus nearby. They're processing what's going on. And then Jesus turns up. Uh, and, and, and he's there, there's a question, well, what, what are you doing? And they go for a walk, heading. And he asks them what they're talking about. And they, their faces are downcast. And they, are you really? What are we talking? Are, have you not been around? Have you been in a <laughs> in a cave? Like here, we have them totally amazed that this person doesn't know what's just taken place. What do you mean? I love Jesus. Just. Uh, uh, pretending ignorance and they, they say in verses 19 to 24 we had hoped that this jesus who's been crucified would be redeem israel that that was our hope that he was going to come and rescue us from the tyrants of rome and lead us forever as our king and he died and we we're amazed and perplexed some of the women came and told us the tomb was empty and someone told them and they sang an angel told them that he's risen from the dead and, and then the men confirmed it and we're it's just too much and so they're going back uh they're going back to Emmaus or going to it for some reason and jesus kind of says well are you not fools have you not understood Everything that's in the Old Testament about the Christ that you need to suffer and die. The, the Daniel 7, one of the great book uh, passages in Daniel 7, and everything that Moses has said is about this 
happening. And Jesus stays with them. They continue on. And as we saw in the video, he breaks bread. Just as Jesus broke bread with his disciples that we read on Friday to point to his death, when he breaks the bread, they see that he is the one who has died for them. And then he disappears. It's almost like, oh, we get it, but it's so amazing he's gone again. It's like that big. It's just extraordinary. And I think Luke has put this in there for us to challenge us, to help us to see that going into all the facts that we've done today is super helpful, I reckon, and good to do every now and then. But what's more important is to see that we're actually blind to who Jesus really is until we truly understand that his body was broken, that he was crucified and rose, and that the real journey isn't on some road somewhere, but that actually was portraying a symbolic journey for all of us, that whether we see Jesus. And that's the challenge that comes to us every time we open up God's word. Do we see Jesus in the pages of the Bible? Because that's the Bible study Jesus finishes with before he ascends to heaven, to his throne. Because as they go back in chapter 24, what we discover is the disciples tell them, uh, 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 they tell everyone these amazing things that have happened. Jesus says, you know, touch me, I'm physical, I'm real. And then he opens up the Bible and gives them this Bible study about what he told them on uh, on the road about what had happened. In Luke 24, let me read it to you and sit with this. Chapter 24, verses 44 to 48. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Everything in the Old Testament. Everything is about me and what I've just done. And here I am. They couldn't see on the road until the bread was broken. Verse 45. Then Jesus... Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what he's written. The Messiah, the one they're waiting for, will suffer and rise from the dead. And on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. The Lord of all has gone through death. We have every good reason, not just blind faith, jumping in the dark, as often people portray Christians as doing. That's not why you should believe in Christianity, as if it's some blind faith. There has to be an element of trusting it to be true and to think, okay, I'm willing to believe in this, but it's not based on no evidence, as I've just um, highlighted briefly, is based on reliable, accurate testimony of God's word. And as we see it, the intent behind it all is that Jesus can forgive us, that we turn back to him and life everlasting with him is the reality and this is going to the whole world. And here we are in Australia, 
on the other side of this globe, 2,000 odd years later, in a little hall, a bunch of people who probably otherwise would not all be together, considering he has given us life eternal. There's every good reason to believe that the tomb was empty. And praise God, Jesus has risen again so that we can rise again. What does the resurrection of Jesus achieve? Gary Habermas not only is a great historian, great scholar who has scoured through the evidence and challenged our preconceived ideas. He has shared how the resurrection has become so personal for him. It was an amazing story. I heard him share it um, and I have it here in front of me, his testimony. Lee Strobel had asked for all the evidence, the evidence was done and he thought he'd ask him, so, okay then, let's say you've convinced me, why does it matter? It's a good question. And I thought I'd let him speak because it's a profound way that he shares it. And it is a bit heart-wrenching. He described what happened to him in 1995 as he was sitting on the porch, looking to the side, deeply sighing, considering that upstairs his wife was dying. It was an awful time. It was a painful time. And his wife was going to die. And he said... You know what was amazing? Saying his words here directly. My students would call me, not one, but several of them. And they'd say, at a time like this, aren't you glad about the resurrection? And he said, as sober as those circumstances were, I had to smile for two reasons. First, my students were trying to cheer me up with my own teachings. And second, it worked. He says, as I would sit there, I'd picture Job who went through all the terrible stuff and asked questions of God, but then God turned the tables and asked him a few questions. And I thought, I knew if God would come to me, I'd ask only one question. Lord, why is Debbie up there in bed? And he says, I think God would respond by asking gently, Gary, did my son not rise from the dead? (laughs) I'd say, well, uh, Lord, haven't I written quite a few books on the issue? Haven't I said this over and over again? Haven't I staked my whole career and everything on it? And he'd keep coming back to me with, Did I not raise my son from the dead? And he'd keep asking me that question until I got the point. The resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, then there's an answer to my wife's death in 1995. It worked for me on that porch back there in 1995 
and it works for me to this very day. Not just out of comfort or consolation, but because there is real hope of a resurrection from the dead for all who follow in the one who led the way. What the resurrection achieves for us is hope that death is not the end. And when our eyes are open to the crucified King, no matter what befalls us, we can, along with our brother Gary, say that the resurrection works. Is it April Fool's or the hope of life after death? What do you say? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we have such amazing hope because we have been given by you such good reasons to believe that there is life after the grave, the grave that seems so painful so often to us. Because Jesus has broken the grave. He's destroyed death. He's dealt with our rejection of you. And there's hope of life after death. This is why we can spend the rest of this morning in joyful, glad hearts, singing with praise, coming to you in prayer and in joy, remembering that everything depends on it. Father, we thank you that our only confidence is in the resurrection of your Son, the King of all. Amen.